Today's episode is sponsored by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And they have a special offer for Packet Pushers heavy networking listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. How do you do that? ITPro.tv slash Packet Pushers to get that 30% off all plans. Use promo code Packet Pushers at checkout. Today's sponsor, DriveNets, offers a network cloud, a hugely scalable network on a disaggregated platform. Higher capacity, lower cost. Find out more at drivenets.com slash resources. That's drivenets.com slash resources. Welcome to Heavy Networking. Today, we are going to have a roundtable discussion, which we started off with a bunch of topics, and I think we got it down to probably two after everyone put all their notes in and everything we want to talk about. We're going to get into this whole thing going on with NVIDIA and Broadcom. If you didn't know, there's there's hardware and software and agreements and SDKs, and people are upset, and we've talked a lot about it. We're going to talk about it more because we got more things to say, more things to say. And if we have time, if we have time, we will go from there and get into to middle mile acceleration with companies like Teridian and Mode. Uh, it's a one of those things you can check the box for in some of the SD-WAN cloud on-ramp solutions. And we'll see, we'll see if the middle mile acceleration juice is worth the squeeze. Our guest today is Tom Hollingsworth, no stranger to the Packet Pushers networking audience. Tom is, Tom, I like to call you the uh, scruffy, lo- scruffy looking nerd herder. They were over at Gestalt IT Tech Field Day and uh, uh, welcome back to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking, my friend. Thank you very much, Ethan. By the way, I am having that put on my Gestalt IT business cards the next time we have them printed. If I'm ever <laughs> actually allowed to go out in public again, I will officially be the scruffy-looking nerd herder. Um, you know, Thank you guys for having me back on. It's always a pleasure to be a part of, uh, of the Packet Pushers family. I, I feel like I've grown up with you guys. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, after this is going to be released, I, I have a milestone. Uh, I will have been blogging for 10 years actually uh, tomorrow as of this recording. Uh, but uh, I grew up from you guys from show one and uh, and I've, I've loved every part of it. So thank you very much uh, for having me back on again. Well, thank you for still showing up after 10 years because at some point you should say, <laughs> screw those guys, I'm sick of them, sick of them. And, uh, and, but, and yet here you are, here you are to say words with us yeah. today. So Clearly I haven't been trying hard enough. Got to upset the Tom if we could just try a little harder. (laughs) So you got the whole Packet Pushers crew here. Uh, I'm Ethan Banks. Drew Conroy Murray is here. And of course, Mr. Greg Farrow. And let's jump into this discussion about uh, NVIDIA and Broadcom and what's going on there. Um, uh, Greg, I'm actually going to ask you to set this up because uh, I'm going to see. This is a test, Greg. Can you do it concisely? Because you've spilled so many words on this topic. Uh, Go for it. Set it up for the nice people. I do feel like I've done a lot of time on the NVIDIA NVIDIA Broadcom. So the NVIDIA, of course, is a maker of graphics processing units. That's their heritage. And over the past few years, they've been uh, growing steadily into adjacent markets. So now uh, their main core market is built around uh, GPUs, obviously, and a wide range of them. And they've now gone on to add TPUs or TensorFlow processing units, which are used in AI, massively parallel processes that specialize in multiplication maths. So these are specific form of coprocessor. Um, and then increasingly they've been casting around looking for adjacent markets. Uh, and they've been eyeing off Broadcom's model. Now, Broadcom has the same sort of thing. Broadcom is the amalgam of a very large number of companies over the last five years, and they've been making a, a fairly large number of acquisitions in different spaces. But today they're sort of a silicon behemoth, if you like. They make ASICs into the 
uh, not only the switching marketplace but the switching NIC. So they're the, one of the largest sellers of uh, silicon for Ethernet NICs and a range of other products. And what they do is keep moving into adjacent markets in the silicon space. The only one they typically haven't gone into, like NVIDIA, is they're not into DRAM and they're not into CPUs because that's where Intel and certain of the Chinese and Taiwanese companies are strongest. So they've been competing on high-value design of ASICs. And the two companies have been on a collision course for a while um, after the Broadcom failed to acquire Qualcomm. So Qualcomm is the third of the um, ASIC triumvirate, if you like, that's not Intel. And they have a particular market position around 5G modems or base modems that go into smartphones. That's their core market. And um, they've got a range of products in adjacent markets. Now, Broadcom made a, a play for it. Uh, the U.S. government rejected the takeover on um, competition grounds, and they also wanted to protect U.S. industry from overseas uh, takeovers. And so that left the way open for NVIDIA to start to grow into adjacent markets and left Broadcom with nowhere to go. So one of the things that Broadcom did um, around about that time is continued on its uh, path of acquiring, I guess what I would call heritage enterprise IT assets. So the first one that we'll talk about here is Brocade. They acquired Brocade mainly for its fibre channel business, and that's a very strong, stable, you know, you print the ASICs, you sell the ASICs, and away they go, they make you money, and they make the ASICs for the NICs and the ASICs for the switches, and then there's other companies out there who turn them into products, and that's a stable, high cash flow business. That was what was funding uh, Brocade's push into Ethernet networking. Broadcom didn't want the Ethernet networking and basically put it all in the bin. Uh, some of it went to extreme, some of it went to other places, but basically they just got rid of it for whatever value they could get. They didn't really spend too much time on it. And then since then, they've gone on to buy companies like um, Symantec for its enterprise IT and a couple of other products like that. And those acquisitions are much more seen as a cash flow generating business. So that is, we've got a nice stable product and it's close to end of life. We can take that and bring that on board um, and use that to prop up our operations while we look for the next big acquisition that's going to be our big thing. And then uh, I think the trigger for the NVIDIA Broadcom um, angst that's going on this week was the acquisition of Cumulus Networks by NVIDIA after its acquisition of Mellanox. Uh, the background there is that uh, Mellanox and Cumulus Networks have been talking to each other about uh, being taken over for, I believe, a long period of time. The suggestion made to me was a couple of years where discussions have been had. Now, that's not unusual for a Silicon Valley company to talk about takeovers or sellouts or buyouts or, you know, whatever. That happens all the time. You never know whether they're serious or not. And I think uh, somebody once said to me that more than half of Mellanox switches that go out the door now have the Cumulus Networks operating system, the Cumulus Linux operating system on it. And then it became clear that Mellanox needed to acquire Linux and to integrate that stack. And then quite suddenly, Mellanox was acquired by NVIDIA. That led to, the, in the last four weeks or so, Broadcom revoking the licence that they offered to Cumulus to um, let their operating system run their SDK and to access the advanced features in the asset. How's that for a rough summary? What do you think, Tom? I think you hit all the high points and you pointed out who all the players are and why this is mm -hmm. a huge mess. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because it's political. There's political angles in here. There's uh, small players playing with medium-sized players, playing with big players, and you've got asset companies. I think one of the big triggers that we'll hopefully we'll talk about here is that 
Broadcom uh, maintains ownership of its IP, its intellectual property. It doesn't, uh, you know, when a company buys its ASIC, they don't get to do with it whatever they like. There's a lot of restrictions on what they can do. And so without that license, Cumulus is effectively out of the business of supporting Broadcom switches. That's the bottom line. So, uh, okay, well, the big impact here, in case you've missed it in the flurry of words that have happened over the last eight minutes, <laughs> if you're a Cumulus Networks user, you don't have access to new Broadcom platforms going forward. I think Cumulus uh, Linux support stops at, oh, I've lost track of the version, 7.2 or something like that. I, I probably have the version mm -hmm. wrong. And going forward, there, there is no more support for Broadcom on Cumulus Linux. So if you invested in that ecosystem, if you're a white box user uh, with Cumulus Linux, Broadcom's not available to you. You're needing to go to Mellanox hardware, which is a burn for a lot of folks that did that investment. Mm -hmm. They We got an email from someone who said, look, we made the switch. We had to do a big sell internally to get off of the, I don't know if they were Cisco or Juniper, whatever they were, but some kind of a traditional networking stack to move over to, to Cumulus Linux. We did that. We bought the Broadcom switches and put Cumulus Linux on them. And it's been good, but now this has happened. And it's like, well, crap, now what do we do? And they're talking about going back to the way things were. So if you're a service provider or a cloud provider, well, that's one thing. You can make these adjustments. This isn't the end of the world for you. But if you're one of the enterprises, you don't have as many NOS choices as a service provider does. Uh, Cumulus Linux is one of the companies that was catering to you for your enterprise-specific needs. Mm. Do you just say screw disaggregation? Do you say screw white box at this point, Tom? This is a really weird problem that a lot of folks have because uh, I look at a lot like the multi-cloud problem that, that we see a lot in, in the other industries. Uh, well, I don't want to be beholden to AWS. I don't want to be beholden to Azure, but I'm going to make a whole bunch of choices that are going to get me stuck there anyway. So, you know, I, I respect the folks at Cumulus. They, they built it on an industry standard platform. They tried to, um, you know, cater to a lot of the different people. But that's one of the problems that you run into when you get acquired, either directly or indirectly, as the case was with, with Cumulus. Um, as soon as you pick a friend, everybody else hates you because you, you, you buddied up with somebody. So they're going to start playing these games. And we've seen this for years, going all the way back to Microsoft. And it's like, oh, wait, we own an office suite now? Guess what? OmniPro and WordPerfect aren't going to work quite as well as they used to. Um, you know, sometimes you have to have somebody step in to, to fix the problem. And I use the quoting fingers there because we don't really fix problems. We just move them down the road. I think the problem that you're going to run into is um, as people start dumping support for Cumulus, in order for Broadcom to adopt things the way that they want to, they're going to have to either buy another company or they are going to have to partner loosely partner with a company like, I don't know, um, uh, what would be one like drive nets or, uh, mm. Arcus or something. Actually Arcus would be my best bet if I was going to yeah. uh, put money on it. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll disclaim this, even though I'm an analyst, I have absolutely no inside bets on any of this <laughs> stuff, but Arcus seems to be the horse that is going with Broadcom. And if I was mm. Broadcom shopping for a horse, there's what I would well, do. The thing, I think the th I think the thing that most people aren't thinking of here is that Broadcom's key customers aren't enterprises. It's mm. the mega clouds, right? Mm -hmm. So your AWS, your Microsoft, your, uh, you know, there's the Chinese clouds, there's the tier two clouds, and they're all looking at Broadcom from the perspective um, that that's the established chip, so we'll just go with that. But the flip side now is that Cumulus, or I would imagine that NVIDIA was hoping that they'd be able to ride Cumulus Linux and Mellanox into some of those accounts and start getting them to see Mellanox as a white box. 
Yeah, the, here's the problem I have with that though. Um, maybe if you're if you're moving down cloud, like uh, Google, Am, uh, not Amazon, uh, Google, Azure, um, way, way, way down the list, Oracle. Um, I'm worried about Amazon, and here's why. Uh, Amazon is basically Facebook. Um, screw it, we're going to build our own switches. And that, and there is a lot of problem that's come in this. There was a news article that came out a couple of weeks ago about Marvell basically canceling one of their server arm architectures. Why? Well, it turns out that the company they wanted to sell it to is building their own stuff. If I was Broadcom and by extension Mellanox, that's what I'd be worried about. Not that they're going to pick the other guy, that they're going to choose none of the above and lock me out of that market forever. Uh, not I, I don't see the mega clouds racing to build their own ASICs uh, for switching. I'll certainly see them doing CPUs because they use such large numbers of CPUs and having ARM CPUs um, replacing Intel CPUs seems to be very positive. Uses a lot less power. They run a lot faster, uh, certainly for certain types of compute <coughs> loads. The AWS ARM instances, last time I was looking at something, are about 40% cheaper than the Intel equivalent instances. So, so uh, there's okay. a substantial benefit there. Th this is fine AWS for those big, big companies. This is yeah. fine. But yeah. what I care about for the purposes of this conversation is the enterprise. That is, if I'm an enterprise, I bet on disaggregation of white box, the cumulus situation has probably screwed me unless I happen to be so fortunate as to have Mellanox, which is in the rack. Ha ha, almost no one has that right now. Mm. Do I say, what do I do going back to my business and the stakeholders and saying, we bet on this, this political thing has happened. I'm sorry, we've got basically switches that are going to be antiquated because we can't keep up with them. I guess we go back well, to Cisco Juniper or whoever. If you were betting on disaggregation for whatever reason, then the next step would be, okay, now I need to take a very close look at Sonic and maybe Dell's recently released for the enterprise Sonic version because that seems to be the next network operating system that's yeah. sort of exp making a play outside of the cloud niche that it could come in toward the enterprise. And there'll be more distributions of Sonic coming, I suspect. Is the Sonic distribution protected from what Broadcom has done here uh, in this anti-NVIDIA play? Uh, I think, I mean, legally Broadcom can do whatever it wants, but the fact that Sonic came out of Microsoft for its Azure cloud, they built it so that they could have their own network operating mm -hmm. system to run their cloud. If Broadcom were to say we're killing Sonic, then they would be essentially giving Microsoft yeah. the finger, which would be stupid. So I, yeah, I so Sonic uses Psy switch abstraction interface. And in theory, Broadcom has licensed um, its technologies that Psy is using. My not very good understanding of this situation is that there are functions in the ASIC that the SDK exposes, and you have to have a license to them. And as a simple concept, and this is how it was explained to me, so I'm repeating what, I'm, what I was told, which is at arm's length, is that there are advanced functions in the ASIC that you'll never get access to unless you're a Broadcom licensee. And the features that are exposed in the SAI um, abstraction layer, which allows you to be agnostic of the underlying silicon, doesn't necessarily let you access all of the advanced functions in the silicon. Is that a problem? Well, uh, if you're somebody like Abstra, for example, no, it's not, because you're really just using the layer three forwarding, doing some eVPN, some VXLAN tagging, and the answer is no, Sonic on Marvel Prestira or um, the Anovium Terralinks or, you know, whoever silicon it is happens to be underneath starts to get more abstracted. But today it's still nascent. Sonic is still 
mostly built for and mostly tested against Broadcom chips. So swings and roundabouts, I think. The other thing you're going to have to run into when you see this, though, is kind of like you said, Greg, and this is a thing that we've seen in a lot of, of different vendors. We're going to give you baseline support through an API for free or for a very small licensing fee. But if you want access to these really cool acceleration features that are under the hood, you're going to have to pay us for those. Well, nobody likes to pay without the promise of getting the money back. So those typically become like your advanced feature license things. If Broadcom continues to do this and they only partner up with a couple of companies that are allowed to access this, and then you know we're going to sell this as the super fast flagship thing, they're going to price themselves out of the market because nobody's going to want to look at this and go, well, I can have, you know, Cumulus for pennies, or I can have, you know, Broadcom OS for $100 bills per switch, and it only gives me a 5% speed increase. Mm, I'm going to pay pennies. Well, that, I mean, you hit on a takeaway there, which is Broadcom's not, doesn't see the enterprise, clearly doesn't see the enterprise as a market. Or if it is a market, it's not one that it cares much about. And uh, in the course of my research uh, for you know to, on the Cumulus, Mellanox, Nvidia, Broadcom topic, it's clear that um, Cisco, for example, has been having um, head-to-head fights with Broadcom over the last three or four years. So it's not like Broadcom even wants to let itself be bullied around by Cisco, who would be a substantial buyer. And um, I've heard stories that Cisco actually sells more Inovium ASICs than it does Broadcom ASICs now, um, because it used. Now there's a there's a bit of a trick in there in that it's got a lot to do with uh, what products are being sold in volume, not to do with where the products are sold to. Does that make sense? So there's a version of Cisco that sells switches white box to large cloud companies, and they may have Inovium chips into them. Um, whereas it uses Broadcom chipsets in some product lines. It has its own chipsets in other product lines. So the total consumption of Broadcom isn't a lot, but apparently Cisco and Broadcom have been going, you know, head-to-head over the last three years too. So it doesn't necessarily think the enterprise market is actually all that valuable to it. We interrupt this conversation just for a moment to tell you about a sponsor we think you'll want to hear from, IT Pro TV. A recent MIT study found that IT occupations have grown by 19.5% between 2004 and 2019. That is more than eight times the growth rate compared to other jobs. Now, you might think that just having a college degree, that, that's the thing. That's the key that unlocks the door to big earnings. But it is not as simple as that. In fact, since 2000, earnings for those with a college degree have flattened a bit. On the other hand, earnings have actually grown a lot for individuals working in IT, which I know, a lot of you know this. You're in IT, you're already studying for a career in IT, you've got your sights set on those big earnings. Well, IT certifications are a good way to help boost your chances of landing that dream job. That's how I started climbing the IT career ladder years ago. IT Pro TV has you covered. From CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft, more than 4,000 hours of on-demand training. Engaging hosts, they are going to present the information to you in a talk show-like format, and they are live every day. And those shows go studio to web in 24 hours. Courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. And you can consume them however you want. You want to use your Chromecast or your Roku or your Apple TV. And, of course, streaming via iOS or Android apps. Yeah, go for it. You can consume all of the IT Pro TV training content any way you like. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. 
Visit itpro.tv slash packetpushers for 30% off all plans. Use promo code packetpushers at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash packetpushers and use promo code packetpushers at checkout and you will save 30% off all plans. And now back to today's episode. Well, let me flip this on its head then. Um, if I'm an enterprise customer, what is the compelling argument for me to go with Sonic at this point, let's say? Uh, why, why bother? So let me draw a comparison here. Apple has announced recently they're going to be putting their own silicon into everything. It's going to take them a few years to get there, but eventually it's going to be a completely locked down ecosystem, top to bottom, hardware, chips, software, everything. Is that a reflection on uh, enterprise networking in some way, where we're basically Apple is validating the model that we've had in enterprise networking for decades, where it's locked down, soup to nuts. I mean, yeah, Merchant Silicon in there and so on. But by and large, you're buying something from a vendor that is their tightly integrated system. Apple's saying, we have all the control, we're doing all the thing, we're going to give you this very specific product. Okay, we're Cisco, Arista, et cetera, we're going to give you this very specific, integrated, wonderful, lovely product. And if I'm an enterprise customer, am I going, okay, this, this aggregation white box experiment's been great, but I'm just going to go back to the way things were because at least I knew what I was getting. Maybe it cost me a little more. Maybe the functionality wasn't exactly what I wanted, but you know, I know it worked. It was good enough, and I'm not going to have abandoned products sitting around. I think one thing to clarify here, part of the reason that Apple has gone to doing their own ARM manufacturing is not because they want to lock the ecosystem down. Maybe they do. I mean, Tim Cook looks pretty devious sometimes. This is as much about the fact that one of their suppliers could not deliver the product that they promised on a timeline that worked for the manufacturer and pushed back against it. So it goes a lot to what Greg was just saying about the fact that Cisco and Broadcom have already been butting heads because Cisco wants some kind of a special treatment or some kind of a special agreement from Broadcom. And Broadcom was like, sorry, you're just not that important to us. I mean, when you look mm -hmm. at it, Apple was buying a whole lot of Intel chips and, and Intel was like, well, we'll just, we'll do the best that we can. And then all the problems they've had with seven nanometer, um, Apple just basically said, well, we're going to go over here now and do our own thing. And when you get your mess sorted out, maybe we'll come back and take a look at it. So I think that this is as much what we see in the enterprise when, you know, a company mm -hmm. like Cisco, Arista, Juniper promises us the moon and we buy it and we get yep. shafted. And then we're like, you know what, next time, we're going to go with these other guys over here because if we're going to get screwed either way, at least we got screwed by our own choices, not by you deciding what we were going to get. So so if you zoom back a bit further, and the thing I didn't talk about is let's have a look at NVIDIA's strategy about what it's actually doing. And if you go onto their website, you'll be able to find a thing called their accelerated computing strategy. And the proposal behind what NVIDIA wants to be able to do is it's saying, uh, modern computing isn't about the CPU and the memory anymore. It's about accelerators. So you can have a GPU. We know that's very useful for graphics acceleration, but you can also use that for uh, uh, machine learning because it allows you to parallelize lots of threads and do high computation, high math type stuff. NVIDIA's also got a very successful TPU, TensorFlow processor unit. And so these are accelerators. So what's the missing part of that puzzle? 
a network accelerator, or as some analysts are calling it, the data processing unit. So what if I was to buy a company that had a network processor unit that did accelerated networking, which is the Mellanox Bluefield NIC, right? That actually has an ARM CPU on it. It has 16 cores. It has hardware acceleration of the networking. Uh, and what we're actually seeing is those NICs are also now being used for storage offload so that when you actually go and do the writes to and from the storage, you can actually accelerate certain parts of the storage computation, block calculation, CRC checks, and so on and so forth. So now all of a sudden you've got a graphics processor, TensorFlow processor, network processor, and the CPU becomes the last piece of that puzzle. So it's bought an ARM license. It's now bringing that together. Now you've got a whole strategy where you're saying, yeah, yeah, the CPU is important, but it's not as important as these other accelerators. And they're sort of betting that that bundle will outperform the Intel bundle. So where Intel has tried to compress everything inside the chip and make it accelerate inside the chip, NVIDIA is taking a slightly different approach and ex expanding the bundle a little bit, offering you accelerators. And then it's going to come back and sell you a motherboard, a server motherboard, with all of the accelerated chips on it that you want. So that would be their strategy, and hence why they bought Mellanox um, to get the NICs. And then if you're going to build that together in a bundle, think um, hyperconverged computing, for example, then you're going to want all of those things as a bundle. You need to connect it together. So if you think about companies like uh, HPE with their GreenLake strategy, they're not selling you a server anymore or a you know, rack of gear or a storage array. They're saying you need this much stuff. We'll just provide the hardware that you need. Think about NVIDIA moving down that path. You're flipping this around to see evolving enterprise needs where you're going to sell them a platform that does all sorts of things, networking being one of them. It happens to have, as you described it as, an accelerator mm. that does the thing. But it's baked into a much bigger uh, silicon uh, smorgasbord, if you will, uh, that, that that does all of these different things. It, you're really describing a very different sales model than the traditional one. I, mean, so... I think it's not so much a sales model, it's a technology architecture that's different. So they've decided not to take Intel head-on and try and compete with their CPU-centric architecture. And Intel saying, well, we'll put more CPU cores on the die and more memory, you know, just increase the memory, you know, and put these little chiplets inside the CPU die and, you know, blah, 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 blah. Intel's going with a slightly different architecture. Same principles, accelerators everywhere, but they're going to expand them off the die as much as they are on the die and say that our overall system performance is gooder or better. Well, my, my argument from, from you know. for sales cycle comes down to how people consume computing today, again, particularly in the enterprise. There's still a lot of siloed uh, construction. There is still a lot of, we're selling storage to the storage people and security to the security people. We have still haven't gotten away from that. So selling as a platform, that is a thing we are seeing more people take on, but I, don't, I think it's pretty far from ubiquitous. And there's a lot of enterprises that would need to have their brains reshaped to uh, to consider some of these alternate models because a lot of enterprises still don't believe in the idea of buying things on a consumption basis because they're still locked into this idea of capex you tell me the thing that you need and we will buy it and five years from now we will buy you another one it's not this idea of we're going to rent this thing whether it's in our house or in somebody else's data center somewhere and when you need this new feature that's available that's always been available we're going to turn it on and the bill goes up eight dollars a month Enterprises don't like that idea. They're coming around to it. 
they're getting a whole lot better at it because, well, let's be fair. Guys like Corey Quinn have built their career off of the sticker shock you get when you turn on all the stuff um, because enterprises don't like a huge outlay every month. Operational teams do, but you know, there's no tax advantage to paying a monthly bill. Uh, whereas you can depreciate assets. So I think overall where you're going to start to see that script flip is when people stop looking at enterprise IT as an asset and start looking at it more as a service. And I know that we've been saying that for God, how many years now? But I don't, as think, long as I don't think it'll ever be that. <laughs> I think there'll be some people, some percentage that'll want to say, I want my IT as a service, but there'll be some other percentage and it could be 50-50, could be, you know, who knows what the final will be. But I think there'll be people who want to pay consumption and people who want to consume it, you know, buy it and own it. And, that, and that's the way it'll be for the next, well, until I retire, which is about as long as I care for there are a lot of people who prefer to buy their milk from the store and a lot of people who want to run a dairy. Um, yeah. that, that number's changed a lot in the last 150 years. Yeah, yeah arguably. I guess I'm coming around to, to the opinion that uh, desegregation for the enterprise might be... I don't know how I would make that argument to a business stakeholder anymore that they need to go with a disaggregated model. You know, can I can I make the argument based on costs? Not really. Uh, can I make the argument it's like it's low risk and you can put any NOS you want on it. We'll get years out of the hardware. No. And the Broadcom thing recently seems like maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's even a riskier choice in some way, in some ways. Uh, flexibility, you know, choice, that whole flip the NOS thing. No one does that. So is that really an argument you can make? I mean, it sounds good but i mean once you've invested in an os yeah. no one's going to change things i think for i think you're right for the average enterprise but there's also a lot of um companies out there who are not average enterprises so people who have 10,000 servers and 20,000 servers in a data center that's, that's a diminishingly small for, number of enterprises but, but i get your point yeah yeah but substantial in value so yes, one customer sure. but many millions of customer dollars. And I think those those companies are increasingly seeing disaggregation as viable for them, that is building their own cloud infrastructure, because once you're at that sort of size, they get to buy it, own it, operate it. Okay, now we're at a thing, because if you're building your own cloud infrastructure, now you've got, uh, uh, presumably you're delivering a lot of applications to a lot of people, you've got a lot of churn, you have a strong need for automation. And if your network infrastructure is not lining up behind that, then you have a problem. And so you get to these purpose-built network operating systems that are designed to work well in an automated environment. Maybe then... But again, diminishingly small number of companies with that problem, the average enterprise, I don't think has that problem because there's not as much application churn and need for constant provisioning and retooling of mm. the network. Um, but right, for certain people, maybe it's there. But again, the average company, I I don't know how I make that argument. It's like, that'd be cool for them, yeah. but we don't have any of their problems. Just keep buying, you know, buy the Cisco yeah. thing. Just do that. I think one of the issues is that Disaggregation was essentially driven by cloud scalers. They had a business and operational model for which it made sense. And then some folks said, hey, maybe we can bring this to the enterprise. And so, you know, some of the value propositions told to the enterprise were, um, we're giving you a fresh new NOS, doesn't come with a lot of bloat, doesn't come with a lot of features you don't use. Um, it's brand spanking new and clean. It's going to run better and faster. It's going to be decoupled from your hardware so we can innovate on the software faster without having to wait if you're tightly coupled to some ASIC for that next generation of ASIC to come out and get new features. And third, I think the big thing was 
it's going to be better for your operations, particularly Cumulus was giving this message. It's Linux at the core, so you manage yep. it like you would a fleet of Linux hmm. servers. It's going to be automation-friendly, and it's going to tie in nicely to your debt nev ops, whatever uh, <laughs> model that you have on the server side. You can bring that to the network side and, and then get your fi- finally get your network infrastructure to match the pace of compute and storage. Um, so whether it worked out, you know, now we're seeing... <laughs> the pace of it, but well, that was I think... Yeah, that was pitch, and I think um, there was a definitive effort by AWS, Microsoft, and Google to get out there and tell that story because it drove the ASIC makers and the the switch manufacturers, so EdgeCore, uh, Acton, you know, Delta, those companies, to get on board with their mark. So they actually used to go out and spend a lot of money speaking at conferences and telling everybody about what they were doing. But the real purpose there was, A, so the people who are involved could um, have a lot of fun going to conferences um, and, you know, looks good on their resume, you know, did all this toying or whatever. But, B, it also created um, those vendors to get interested in making products that suited them. So companies like Broadcom and and uh, Anovium came and Barefoot came to the market with products to meet the perceived need of what these companies would want and were... In hindsight, were we wrong as enterprises to jump on board and think that what they could do would fit us? And, you know, do we need to put that aside and say, well, that's fine for Amazon, but it's not what we need down here on the ground? I think the other thing that happened is the traditional vendors in the enterprise space uh, saw disaggregation coming and realized, all right, we actually need to do something about this. So we've seen efforts from Cisco to sort of revamp their network operating systems, to expose APIs, to make it more automation friendly, to redevelop it in in a more, using more modern techniques like modular, um, modular development so that you can run different pieces that whether you need it or not, that kind of thing. So give folks more choice in how they run it and how they operate it. And that sort of, if you start to bring that to folks, then the benefits you would get from a full disaggregation model may become less prominent. Mm. So you're suggesting their competitive response to disaggregation and white box has been successful to a larger, lesser or greater extent. I mean, it sort of blunts the impetus of wanting to switch to a cumulus or whatever. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Juniper has white box now. Cisco's got white boxes that some companies can buy if you've got a suitably large order volume. Um, you know, the, the thing is when you're a Cisco, you only need to be good enough to have a great deal of success against an upstart. Uh, and mm. it took them a few years to get to good enough. Uh, but I think mm. at least from a marketing perspective, they've gotten it. Okay. So what do you think that. about Dell? So Dell's open networking strategy looked like it was going to be a good idea for a while. They would sell their switches without an operating system and let other people in the ecosystem go and, you know, look at uh, companies like Pika 8, of course, Big Switch had their Big Switch light. Appstra says Cumulus Linux, they'll run their SDN on top and use Dell hardware underneath. Where does it leave Dell's open networking, which is Broadcom, but without Cumulus Linux and, you know, available for Broadcom switches, and they've got service contracts on Cumulus, on Broadcom, on Dell switches. Um, and there's a lot of people out there who did that. Um it's going to be interesting to see how Dell's networking division responds. Do you think Dell could negotiate a separate, I don't know, agreement with Broadcom to have access to those APIs or to have access to some kind of specialized custom support thing that they have to build and maintain on their own, and then that causes so, a whole bunch of problems down the road? 
I'm glad, so glad you asked that question because I was hoping you would. And here's why: because cumulus you stepped right has into not his trap. Step right into it. So the question is: Why has Cumulus Linux and Cumulus Networks not put out an official statement on this matter? So Cumulus has been telling its customers quietly in the back channel for about a month now. In their Slack channel, it's sort of an open secret that you know this has happened, and. Uh, but there's been no official announcement that um, the Broadcom has rescinded their licence and they've had to take certain steps, legally binding steps, to uh, certify that Cumulus Linux will no longer be uh, developing anything against the Broadcom SDK. Now, Cumulus can continue to develop their Linux, so FRR and all of the other code that's in there, but where the Cumulus Linux talks to the ASIC, that is now locked off. No patches, no changes, although it may be that security patches could be, will get permission going forward. So if Dell, as a Broadcom licensee, selling Cumulus Networks, maybe Cumulus Linux is relying on its partners to bring Broadcom to the table and hoping that uh, they can find a way to wiggle out of this. And that's why we haven't seen an official announcement. I'd be making that up. In a month, then. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, at some point, Cumulus is going to have to put out an official notice. There'll be, you know, the pressure will build up one way or the other. You know, oh, no, we haven't lost the license. Oh, oh, yes, we've got license, but we're doing something about it to get it back or whatever. So um, who knows what, you know, what the speculation would be. But I do find it interesting that A, Broadcom is willing to take on a licensee. and cut them off in a highly, it probably wasn't intended to be visible. Broadcom has always been, um, the stories that I hear in the background is Broadcom is not a, uh, a an enjoyable supplier to work with, would be, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. it, and, and that's not unusual in that business, let's be fair. NVIDIA has a fairly brutal reputation for the same things, and Qualcomm has a much worse reputation in this industry. So, you know, Intel and Marvell are also in the chip supply business, and they are all absolutely ruthless, heartless competitors. So let's not single out Broadcom here, but Broadcom does have a reputation for being uh, focused on its interests over its customers' interests, shall we say. And Ethan, getting back to your larger point, I would say that for the typical enterprise, whatever that is, um, the bar to bring in disaggregation, to take that risk, to make that case to your business, we need to do this has now gotten higher. It's not impossible mm. to get over, but uh, the value proposition is now much more difficult to communicate, I think. There is one downside, Drew, that that occurs to me, though. Um, one of the things that we've talked about over the years as, uh, as network designers is um, that the, at least the illusion of choice. We want the freedom to change things out. If we invest in uh, let, let's say Cisco, because they, they come to mind as having invested heavily in DevNet and network programmability and so on. If you go back to a full Cisco stack and then invest, invest in their automation and their way of doing automation, a la DevNet, et cetera, your choice is maybe 
reduced again. I don't want to say vendor lock-in because that would be a little too dramatic perhaps, but, uh, but we are getting back to that point where automation is of a benefit, not just because customers want it, but because, oh, if we do it in this particular way, that's our own specific vendory kind of way with our own unique uh, APIs and uh, tooling that we're providing for you, we're going we're gonna to lock you in because it'll be too hard to change. Here's my EIGRP-like API. It's, it's, you know, it's different to everybody else's and it's ours, but it's an API and it's open. No, I, th- I think at the end of the day too, Ethan, there's one thing that we've talked about a lot over the years. And one is most organizations just don't care. The network's not that important. So maybe defaulting back to the old position of the black box makes sense for networking for most people. And increasingly I'm of the view that um, the switch actually doesn't matter much at all. So I don't think the fallout from this actually is going to be substantial except for the people directly impacted. The point is is that the the lock-in is in the SDN. So it's the Abstra, the ACI, the SDX, I was just access, say, the glue where, where this where where that goes away is when you invest in in some kind of third-party tooling like Ansible or maybe you've rolled your own a little bit with some sort of Python or you're using Itential or you're using Glue or something that's abstracting away whatever the switch is underneath and so you don't care about it uh, particularly because you've used that third-party tool. Maybe you're locked into the third-party tool now. You know, I don't know. Did, did the podcast host stop talking? Ah, good. That gives me a minute to talk about DriveNets, a fine packet pushers sponsor. Wait a minute. Was I one of the hosts? Did I? I just interrupted myself, didn't I? You know what? None of that matters. DriveNets matters right now. Well, what does DriveNets do? Well, we had DriveNets on Heavy Networking Episode 517, and here's the summary. The DriveNets Network Cloud Routing Software runs on white box hardware and enables service providers and telcos to quickly scale capacity, control capital outlay, and support automation in their networks. Blah, blah, words. What did I just say? Well, scale, right? We're going to add switches to the fabric without it being a big production. Control capital. Stay in control of your spend. Don't give wheelbarrows of gold away to build out the network if you don't have to. Support automation. Yeah, table stakes these days. No one's selling a new network platform without automation because there's no way I'm sitting there banging away on a keyboard device by device for hours at a time because I did that for 20-something years and my fingers still hurt. Here's one more big features of the DriveNet's network cloud that we explored back in episode 517. DriveNet software enables the use of distributed, disaggregated white box routers that function as an integrated unit. Right. You manage the fabric as a system, not the fabric as a collection of individual network devices that must be tended like sheep wandering around a field. DriveNet is one of the new scalable network approaches, rethinking what's been done for the last 25 years, and they are bringing out the value of network disaggregation, where we can mix and match network operating systems and switch hardware, and they're bringing that to telcos and to hyperscalers. And this means that they can drive costs down because, hey, you can separate your hardware and software spends, and that gives you back some bargaining power. And that means it's easier to make money with your network. To find out more, listen to Heavy Networking Episode 517 from May 2020 and visit drivenets.com slash resources. Once again, that's Heavy Networking Episode 517 and visit drivenets.com slash resources. And if you talk to someone at DriveNets, hey, do us a favor. Tell them you heard about them on the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. And now, back to the show. The whole locked-in issue is kind of a, a bogeyman that doesn't really exist and in the fact that, well, in some ways it does in that you're going to have to make a choice at some point. You're going to have to invest your time and resources in some place, whether that's an open source tool or a closed proprietary system. 
that's still going to be where you build everything else around. And that be, becomes the thing that locks you in. So it, it's going to happen one way or another, whether it's your friendly yeah. open source project or a but giant corporation. If you had an independent SDN controller, like a Glueware or an Abstra, right? Um, you probably wouldn't care because you'd just be able to take a different vendor switch and slide it underneath. You'd have some work to do to make it fit, but you know, you're not exactly uh, going to spend two years in a buying and purchasing evaluation and new standards and run books. You're just going to go like, uh, change the switch out, replace it. The put the, the, the lock in or lock out is above the switch. It's not the switch. So I don't think this matters significantly, except that it's a shame that a, a very promising company basically um, disappears into the woodwork. So, Tom, let me let me ask you to put your consultant hat on because you you consulted for many 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 years. You're okay. talking to a medium sized business. They've got I don't know 25 locations, and uh, you know they got a bunch of switches out there and all that kind of stuff. Would you send them down the road of we want you to go? I'll just again I'll use Cisco as the example. Go all in on that and their tooling and their DevNet stuff and the various things they give you, or would you say we'll start today with Cisco because that's hardware you're familiar with and you have a good customer relationship, let's say, with them. And then we're going to layer uh, glueware on top of that to do automation stuff. I've always been a proponent of, of doing a little bit more with things, but a lot of it's going to come down to the, the talent level that they have in the organization and the direction that they want to go in. Because if you talk to somebody who, you know, has like a basic networking level of knowledge and has no plans to do any kind of expansion on this, black box the whole way because you're never going to know the difference. There's features in that switch that you'll never even turn on. But when you get a hold of those people who who understand the value of automation, who understand the value of doing bigger and better things like, you know, building application acceleration or, you know, remote site failover or all that other stuff, that's an entirely different discussion that requires technical depth. And you can generally figure out pretty quickly when those people are capable of talking back to you. Because as a consultant, as a dirty, ugly, mean consultant, my biggest fear of selling that enhanced version is that I will never be able to leave this client because I will always be in here tweaking something that breaks and I'm not getting paid for that. So you're making a really important point here that which way you go is going to depend a lot on your ability to support that solution internally. Yeah, because I've seen this, and, and I, I will I will caveat this. A lot of the work that I did was in school districts, and the typing teacher is not the person to be working on your Novell server. So we did a lot of heavy touch stuff, but there were a couple of places where the people who ran those organizations were all about, I'm going to automate the creation of user accounts across the network because I know how to get in here and fix this. So it was a bright spot in my life when I could just turn it over, you hear the keys, you fix it. And then when that person left, I was back in there constantly going, all right, he did something really weird here and I got to figure out how this works. <laughs> so the sword cuts both ways. And, and you have to understand that customer's level of technology expertise. And the clouds have actually done this really well because they have two options. You don't get to touch anything outside of this dashboard. And here's all the ugly APIs underneath that you can tweak to your heart's content, but don't call us when you break them. So assuming some technical competency internally, then, would you say, you know, a third-party tool, uh, you know, an Ansible if we want to go open source or, uh, you know, a Glueware or an Abstra if you had a specific need that Abstra could solve? Yeah, I would say that that's something you definitely want to look at. You want to give them the capability to have a place to tie everything back into. You don't necessarily want to hamstring them by saying, well, sorry, Cisco doesn't sell this, so you can't use it. 
um, give them those options. But with the caveat, you're probably going to be spending a lot of time reading up on how to make this work. It's going to make you a better networking person. It's going to make you a better systems person. But if you're ready to put the wrench time and the book time in, you, the sky's the limit for what you want to do with it. Well, and that's a lot better as a career choice than spending time on Cisco's licensing strategy. <laughs> right? I, I was going to say, not spending time on Cisco's licensing strategy is not just a good career choice. It's good for your blood pressure. It's good for your heart health. And it's good for not going insane. So many people have said that to me. And, uh, you know, I knew this was where it was going to go when Cisco got involved because they don't have the internal self-discipline to not do this. They don't have the – when it comes to money and profits, Cisco can't control itself from doing dumb things. I would argue and a people lot People are saying they're now like spending two days a week just working on licensing and not actually working on the product or extracting value from the product for their employers. And that seems to me to be a, a, a good career decision would be to just avoid like that. If that's something that you don't want to do, then you're going to have to find a way around that. And I think now we've just sort of come back to here's a reason maybe why disaggregation would make sense. If your organization is moving toward the path of that SDN level, that Appster, that Anuda, that, that glue where, where you're trying to put all the intelligence at a higher um, abstraction layer, that's where disaggregation and white box should be your thing. Why are you going to pay for Cisco and Abstra? Go goes mm. back to Greg's point of the switch doesn't really matter if it does right. what you need it mm. to do. You know, now we've come yeah. come away from, well, that, you know, this is actually a really interesting point because, uh, uh, Tom, uh, you know, certainly uh, you and I beat our heads for many years against Cisco certifications, let's say. Uh, Greg, you too. You know, part of that was CLI commands, baby. How do we write this configuration <laughs> stanza to do the thing? We needed to do the thing. But if you've abstracted that and you've up moved it uh, you know, up the stacks, so you're not down there in configuration stanzas. You're just using the SDN tool. What matters now from that perspective? Well, the SDN tool matters and your processes and your workflow matter matters uh, more than the intricacies of how to type a specific command. Cursed commands that <laughs> change from version to version well, no, and so on and you so know, on. Or even less, even less salutary things like knowing when to reboot a switch because that's a, that's a known bug. Yeah. Right? Which is, and I think that's the thing about SDN is it moves the, the value proposition away. And this is where I start to get really torn between um, if I go and get Cisco's SD access or Cisco's ACI, then they are bound to the hardware chain. Now there's a feature, there's a there's a positive there. That is um, the SDN controller to physical switch integration is owned by one company and it should work. Experience suggests that Cisco's getting it not particularly right, but it's, you know, in theory, customers are used to the way Cisco delivers products and then fixes them over time, right? Or gets them sorted out over time. But Juniper Contrail has an interesting model where it works really well with the Juniper stuff, but they'll bend over backwards to work with third party if you want to. They don't prevent you from having third party products, whereas Cisco definitely excludes you from having third party products um, in its, and not just in overt ways, but also in subtle ways. You know, like, oh, you want help with that third party product? Sorry, you're on your own there. There's the documentation. Have a nice day, right? Um, whereas you can go all the way out to the other ones where like Glueware and Appstra, which sort of embraces a pretty broad church of products, they've still got an approved list of products that they'll support, but you could go out there and get onto them. And you could even go all the way out to companies like Pika 8, who, um, who are building a campus uh, solution hmm. with an open source operating system, you know, and so forth. So there's it's, there's still plenty of choices out there 
the landscape of enterprise networking per se, and then, you know, we're not even talking about SD-WAN here. I mean, right? There's we're not plenty of choices, not plenty of choices if you're a on the enterprise side of things. You brought up PK-8, which I'm glad you did because I mm-hmm. they somehow escaped my mind, but uh, mm-hmm. one of their founders wrote an excellent blog article on, you know, kind of the state of white box and aggregation or disaggregation and what that means for the enterprise a while back that I read, uh, maybe July-ish time frame, something like that. Um, and they're another player that's in that space that we haven't mentioned. So there is some choice it's not just sonic you know the poor pka people are sitting there going You're in, come on we've been here a long time and they have been here a very long time with a with a robust product as i understand it so um, and there's lots I, of other open open network operating systems too there's uh, ip infusion who sort of seem to burn hot and cold they haven't quite made up their mind whether they want to but be i don't see most of these anyone's or? you can list a bunch of them right yeah ip infusion mm-hmm. and, and there's aknos and I, I forget what all the, the the long list is but i think they're aimed more at the hyperscalers and so on not enterprise yeah they're all getting a bit lazy because they just want to sell to a few customers a few big customers they'd rather make a handful of big bets and sell to the bigger but there's also a bunch of tier two and tier three clouds too right so there's, you know, it's not just the top five clouds. There's a whole, there's 30 or 40 companies below, you know, the um, that have clouds in Europe or, you know, Equinox has a big cloud infrastructure and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And all those second tier people are all making buying decisions that are, you know, I think those companies are generally being lazy and cheap and saying we would rather spend hire 50 salespeople and try and target these 50 customers than to say we'll hire 500 salespeople and try and get to resellers and switch them out of Cisco. Because Cisco's hold on resellers remains, you know, the, the the ability of your average reseller engineer to stop thinking about Cisco and try and sell something unique and is, is pretty rare, you know, you know. Well, a lot of that comes down to the fact, and, and as, as bad as I hate to say it, Cisco has done a really great job of binding their models to the support structure. Um, if I have a problem with the Cisco equipment, I can call TAC. Now, I may scream at TAC for hours, but at least I'm screaming at somebody else and not being screamed at by my customer. Whereas if I oh, yeah. build this, this, this stack together myself, it's my stack for the rest of life, and I have to be the one who ultimately has to fix mm-hmm. all these problems, whether it's calling an OS vendor, calling a hardware vendor, or going on Reddit and going, help. <laughs> yeah, they call that the blame support model. Mm-hmm. And you can, yeah, I've, I've contacted Cisco Tech. There's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. You've just yeah. shifted the blame onto, <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean? And, of course, mm-hmm. they're so big and so whatever and immutable and intractable. It's not like they're going to change, you know. If your CIO gets on the phone to Cisco and says, what are you going to do? They're going to go, like, you're a third in the third in the queue, mister. <laughs> it will be back in, tw- you know. You're going to wait longer. That's what you're going to do. Yeah, right. even though you don't know it. But yeah. Well, gentlemen, we've come up on uh, 50 minutes here of, uh, of discussion about, about all of this. I don't know that we have any answers because uh, on the one hand, we can say, you know what? You invested in Cumulus Linux and Broadcom switches and now you're screwed and so you've been burned and so you don't want to deal with that anymore. And so just go back to the old way of buying network stuff. You know, On the other hand, we're saying, well, hey, with the right automation tooling, the right SDN solution, does the switch even matter? You know, Buy something that works well with that SDN tooling that you might choose lots and 
and increasingly uh, third-party choices there that you can get a hold of, whether that's, uh, again, we've mentioned Abstra Glueware, and there's uh, bunches of other ones. It's certainly Ansible if you want to start there. And hey, roll your own with Python, because everybody wants to roll their own and support that for the rest <laughs> of their lives. That'd be great. Um, but, <laughs> but my point being, maybe it's not as simple as, um, you know, we did this one thing with Cumulus Linux, and it didn't work out because Broadcom NVIDIA had a falling out, and so, ah, forget it. It was a failed experiment. It isn't that way, because the market's evolved in other ways as well. We've gone on to a model where maybe what the switch is is irrelevant as long as it has an API that could be programmed by some other tool that you're using now to make the network do the thing that you need for it to do. Well, we were thinking about talking about middle mile stuff, but guys, I, I, I say we forget that conversation. Have that another day. We've already gone along enough we'll in this podcast, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we'll people do want to hear us rave on for much more. I don't want to hear us rave on for much more. That's for sure. That's <laughs> killing myself here. It's awful. It's awful. Well, Tom Hollingsworth, I mean, I know everybody knows you because you are, after all, the networking nerd. But uh, please tell folks where they can find you on the Internet. I feel like I'm all over the place now trying to keep track of it all. It's crazy. Um, my blog is networkingnerd.net, but I also write a lot of stuff on gestaltit.com. Uh, that's generally where I write things about briefings or new ex exciting technology. Uh, that's my Batman job. If you want to see what I do that pays the bills, you can head over to techfieldday.com and check out the list of all the things that we have coming up for the rest of the year. Uh, we just came off of some events that are focused around networking. If you want to head over there and check those out, there's a lot of videos on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash techfieldday. Um, that should get you through the quarantine, no matter how much longer it lasts. <laughs> now, Tom, on Tech Field Day, there's a lot of events coming up, and I know part of your job is recruiting delegates that are people that can be in, at this point, the virtual room, listening to the vendors, providing feedback, and so on. Are you looking for delegates at this point? We are always looking for delegates. Um, I, I, I liken it to the, uh, if you're a sports person, uh, the uh, Major League Baseball's farm system. Um, the next great pitcher is waiting down there in single A ball to be called up. You have a blog, have a Twitter handle, have an opinion about networking. You're the person that we're looking for. And before you say, well, you only take people like Greg and Ethan. I love Greg and Ethan, but I can't have them at every event. And I would love to see you guys. So here's what you do. Head over to techfieldday.com. Up at the top, there's a link that says delegates. And when you drop it down, it's like the third or fourth thing down that says become a Tech Field Day delegate. Fill out the form, tell them that you want to be a part of networking or security or wireless, which are the cool topics. If you want to be part of cloud or storage, you can go deal with my boss. Um, and I'll see that email and then I'll go check you out. I'll call the FBI. We'll do a background check. And then one day you may get to show up around my virtual table or around our physical table. And you get to rub shoulders with the packet pushers and a whole bunch of other cool people. And we'll make you famous. Thank you, Tom, and uh, Tech Field Day and Packet Pushers have been friends for a long time, and uh, thank you for continuing to invite us, even though we can't even make all the events that you guys invite us to. We're, we're glad to participate, and uh, thanks for being alongside us in this whole whatever this social media podcasting blogging experiment has been. If you're out there in the audience, thank you for listening. Uh, we are the Packet Pushers Podcast Network. This has been the Heavy Networking Show. You can find this in many more of our fine, absolutely free technical podcasts, along 
along with our community blog. That is all at packetpushers.net. If you think the only show that exists is heavy networking, you're missing out on a bunch of other ones like Day 2 Cloud, IPv6 Buzz, Full Stack Journey, The Network Break, Briefings in Brief, and whatever else I am forgetting. We are on Twitter at Packet Pushers. We're on LinkedIn, if that's the only social media that you're allowed to go to these days. And uh, hey, take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts. We would appreciate that. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.